Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. At this week's Indigenous Energy Summit, First Nations engaged and addressed how they might assume ownership of major projects, including the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I spoke with Stephen Buffalo, President and CEO of the Indian Resource Council. Barbara Kay, columnist with the National Post, writes, Don't ever question mass immigration or you'll be instantly racist. I asked Barbara Kay about that. A majority of Canadians consider the absence of new pipeline capacity in Canada a national crisis. The poll was done by Angus Reid. I spoke with Shaki Curl, Executive Director of the Angus Reid Institute. A week ago, the issue created national headlines in Canada. The issue is when women from Gulf states flee for their lives out of fear of their fathers and families. Radha Sterling is the founder of Detained in Dubai. Many of the young women who flee the Gulf states contact her. And here's what Radha Sterling told us. So at this week's Indigenous Energy Summit, First Nations engaged in the production of oil and gas in Canada addressed how they might assume ownership, partial or full, of major projects, including the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And one of the questions is, is this really the only way to fairly expeditiously and responsibly deal with the with the issue of pipelines in this country? 58% of Canadians told the Angus Reid Group, and you'll hear the details on the poll shortly, that uh, it's a crisis in Canada, that there are no new pipelines, and certainly... It's a building economic crisis. Stephen Buffalo is the president and CEO of the Indian Resource Council. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Buffalo, good to talk to you again. Yes, for sure. Thanks again for having me. Yes, sir. What level of interest among First Nations involved in the energy sector exists in in acquiring partial or full ownership? And let's start with TMX. Right. You know what, the, uh, there's, there's a ton of interest. You know, uh, when we decided on this gathering, it's be primarily because we knew about five or six other groups that are trying to coordinate, uh, not necessarily, well, we, we can't say it IRC ownership, we call it Indigenous ownership, um, who, whoever would like to participate in, you know, representing oil and gas producing nations. Right now, without the market access, we're feeling the pinch. You know, the price differential is, is, is kind of uh, hurting us. You know, uh, and then I, I guess, you know, we'd like people to understand, you know, that when our communities that are involved in the energy sector, in the oil and gas, you know, they use that money to subsidize their communities, you know, their economic development, those housing issues, those social issues, those water issues that everybody hears about in the press. So, you know, it, it's really starting to take its toll. There are still people in this country, and maybe among them some politicians, who don't believe that there are any First Nations actually actively supporting the idea of pipelines. <laughs> well, as disappointing as that is, you know, uh, the, 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 the reality is, is that our, our people have always been, you know, uh, active in pursuing economic development. You know, uh, I hate to say it, but the Indian Act is sure uh, handcuffs our, our progress. You know, it, it limits our, our ability to do proper economic development. But, you know, given the fact that, you know, some of our tribes have signed a treaty with the federal government, you know, there there's some avenues that we can pursue. 
But uh, at the end of the day, you know, as time has progressed, you know, we, we've never been really part of those decision-making uh, uh, tables. And, and I think in this case with TMX, yeah, like um, a decision has been made and we're just going to take this pipeline and ram it through. Well, uh, the PC government, the Harper government comes in, eliminates all the environmental concerns. Boom, now we got Bill C-69 and Bill C-48. And, you know, we're kind of working backwards. But at the end of the day, the, the consultation piece and at least having an Indigenous participation in some of these decisions, I think it would have been more helpful than it is where it's at now. But, you know, the, the good side is is that, you know, we kind of see something now and we can kind of look at something feeling in the dark, that there is a First Nations community, communities that have come to terms with oil and gas, that have come to terms with pipelines, because, you know, we, our standards here in Canada, in, in both, sec, both regions of, of the energy sector, are world class by by far, you know. So the, the safety mechanisms in in place. It, it costs money to be safe, but at the end of the day, we want environmental conservation as well, just as anybody else. And and you and I have talked about that in the past. Um, right. Now, when it comes to the, if it were to come to the sale of, let's say, TMX, um, would there be a consortium that would be in place consisting of? First Nations, the federal government, provincial governments, the energy industry—is that a—is that a, a likely scenario, or what's most likely? What would you what would you what would you favor? Well, right now, I, I think you know we, we are seeing a tremendous support from the industry, not only the pipeline industry but the oil and gas uh, sector, uh, and, and you know I, I think that you know with that type of influence, I think we can move things along. As as we see right now. Uh, the government didn't participate at our conference, you know, upon numerous requests to uh, Minister uh, Natural Resource Canada, Minister Sohi, he declined to attend. And uh, I don't know what kind of message that's telling us, or is it just because it was a cabinet shuffle, or I, I don't know. But it, it's really disappointing that he couldn't at least send somebody to speak on his behalf. That is, uh, that's disturbing. It's very disturbing, you know, but, you know, very positive that the Alberta government, the NDP government was there, and uh, Rachel Notchie not actually communicated with us and it, it told us that um, due to a, a funeral of a Speaker of the House in Alberta, she was attending that funeral, and we had the Minister McQuaid um, Boyd there and Minister Fian there from their, from her government. So, you know, it is positive. They, they, they were participating, communicating with some of our Indigenous leaders, so... It is great, but uh, yeah, no, we uh, we're, we're we're trying to make a difference. We're, we're we're trying to at least look at an opportunity here before things get too late. As we know, the federal election is kind of around the corner. I heard a date October twenty first, mm-hmm. but um, you know that that's the uh, we we have a short window to really get things going here. Yeah, I I find it really disturbing that uh, that the federal government chose not to participate. In your conference, because this, to me, this is starting to look like, you know, having some sort of combination of of, uh, of interested groups working forward together, First Nations, one would like to think the federal government, provincial governments, and the energy industry all working together, that seems to me somehow to be, maybe to be the only way to really significantly move the, the needle on pipelines. Absolutely. You know... We, we, we all have to understand when when things get better in our communities, it, it, it definitely helps the Canadian economy as well. So you know, it, and that's 
and that's to, to to take off a lot of strain. You know, there's financial strain and there's requests for for more funding for this, for more funding for infrastructure, more funding for housing, education needs. You know, our populations are growing. Our, our dimensions of our communities are only so big. You know, uh, which of course we did not decide, but that's what it is. The reality is, you know, so the infrastructure, the money needs to be there. So we have to find this alternative source, and that's what it would be. And I know it's it's really. Uh, it bugs me too that you know, what are they thinking? And, and, and at the end of the day, well, exactly. You know, what what are they thinking? Because they talk out of both sides of their mouths at the same time. On, on one on one in one instance, they talk about the federal government talks about wanting to significantly improve relations with First Nations. Here's an opportunity to participate in your conference, which has the support, as you said, of the Alberta government, which has the support of the energy industry. And it was the federal government that bought the TMX um, for four point was it four point five or four point seven billion dollars, and right. so they should be at the table. Mr. Buffalo, did you say earlier? I'm, I just want to clarify this. Did you say that the Stephen Harper government had removed all regulations as far as? Well, no, they they, they removed some of the environmental regulations to ensure that this pipeline went through, and and. Uh, well, a new 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 government came in, and now they're dealing still with this TMX pipeline. And of course, you know the consultation piece at the time. You know, uh, I fully support you know the nations that stood up against it because uh, you know they they needed to identify their rights. They needed to push those uh, issues forward. And at the time, you know, uh, you know the the uh, the government just tried to go right through. You know, a single letter to the community: we're doing a pipeline through. Here we come, and. Uh, Lo and behold, yeah, now we have all this uh, other other stuff that is coming to the forefront as far as uh, identifying the rights and, and, and acknowledging, you know, that, you know, that they're able to uh, be able to get this pipeline through. Do you do you find, and I, I don't want to get sidetracked here because there's some questions I really need to ask you, but do you find that it turns into a political battle where, where, where First Nations interests and, and just actually the, the well-being of the energy sector and thereby extending to the well-being of the people who all benefit from the energy sector, i.e. everybody in this country, do you find that it's just become a kind of a football where everybody's blaming everybody else and we lose sight of what the objective is? Absolutely, of course. You know, and it, you know, I, I guess, you know, from the First Nations standpoint, yeah, I, I can definitely agree that, you know, a lot of the communities have, have never been fully consulted in regards to some of these infrastructure projects. And by all means, you know, I, I support them standing up and, and uh, pushing back on that a bit. But at the end of the day now, you know, as it, as it comes to terms, you know, uh, some uh, impact benefit agreements have been signed. Some of the nations on the, along the route have signed on as partner or a mutual benefit agreement has been signed. Yeah, so do you believe, there. I'm sorry, do you believe that you can bring on side the First Nations who have steadfastly opposed pipelines on their land? Do you believe that that that, that you have or you can put in place the various component pieces that are necessary to bring First Nations who have been opposed on side? It's definitely a challenge, but I think, you know, when we communicate and work together and, you know, identify, uh, you know, what the true end game is here for our people. Now, to own a pipeline, that that's not the goal. You know, the, the end goal for for us is that our, our shareholders, are some of them aren't born yet. If you can understand that, so we ought to be able to try to find, you know, the the hope, you know, the, and, and have that balance between economic development and, and, and 
preserving the environment. You know, so saying that, though, you know, I, I think, you know, as a pipeline owner or, or part of the process, when we look at the monitoring and we look at the regulations, I think we'll do it 100 times better than anyone because of our connection to the land. But, you know, saying that, though, you know, uh, one, one, of the, one of our chief speakers at our conference was Dr. Vivian Krause, and, and she talked about the, uh, the influence from the United States, from the right. Tides Foundation, Rockefeller, her, Rockefeller Brothers, and their attempt to, to landlock our resources here in Canada. So, and, and, you know, some of those contrib- contributions have been made to our brothers and sister communities in B.C. who are saying no. So that part has me for a loop, to be honest, too, because now they're saying their rights, you know, my, my people, my, my, my spirituality. So is it, is it the money making you say that, or is it really, truly coming from your heart? You know what I mean? So, I, oh, I hear you. That's the, that's the, I mean, that's the question you're going to ask. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, it, it's definitely need to be talked about, but, you know, yeah. I, I know we're just at the tip of the iceberg, so that communication will happen as soon as we can get to it, hey, but mm-hmm. right now it, it's it's difficult. But I think our position as being owners would definitely influence some of these uh, communities that have said no. Okay, let me ask you, let me, we're, it's a lot of money we're talking about, $4.7 yep. billion. So are we talking about, um, a, you know, a surmountable amount that, you know, that's, it's not going to be impossible if there's the the right partnership put in place? Is, is that money doable? Well, I, I think for the most part it is. You know, like, well, you look at uh, Fort Mackay in Mikishu Cree and the, the deal that they made with Suncor in the tank farm. You know, they, they took it to the bond market, which was oversubscribed, and, and it, it was proof that the industry and First Nations can do business at that level. Right. Now, now uh, the government has, has repeatedly told our people, there's no money, there's no money, and then, voila, $4.5 billion comes out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so... Can it be done? I'm pretty positive it can be done. You know, even at our conference, there was uh, some investment managers that, you know, approached and said, maybe we can talk about this. You know, we have a pension fund. We can talk about, you know, the models. But that's our our key goal now is uh, to identify those models and and, and see how exactly the money would flow. Do you believe believe the, the current government is actually in opposition to creating new pipelines to finishing TMX to actually doing what they said they would do. And I, I point to Bill C-69 and I point to Bill C-48 as, uh, as evidence for, or possible evidence for my question. Right. You know, it, it, and to be honest, I, it, it, that's a really tough question to answer. You know, I, I know is, the theories yeah. there. <laughs> I, I know the theories there, but, you know, our, our prime minister have had said, you know, we are going to do this pipeline. And he also has said nation-to-nation relationship, most important thing for this government. So <laughs> I, I'm still kind of riding that wave. But <laughs> in the same sense, you talk about Bill C-69. And, and for the most part, there's a lot of good environmental issues that are, are important in that bill. But the other part is is that, you know, it, it can disable us in a heartbeat. And, and same with Bill C-48. You know, I, I don't know fully the whole technical terms and, and, and regulations in it, but I, I've been told it, it's, it's basically funneling all of these tankers only into one harbor in Vancouver. So is that a challenge for, say, Eagle Spirit and for any other uh, oh, yeah. pipeline that may come towards Kitimat? You know, it definitely it is. And, and 
Huge. You know, challenge. those those communities there are they they want to do business. You know, they they're prepared to uh, to be part of of uh, what kind of development to be coming from there. Mr. Buffalo, I have about thirty seconds left. Um, what do you come away with after your conference this week? What's what's your just your just your gut feel? Well, I, I'm very optimistic and, and I'm, I'm positive we'll be able to have something on the table for the federal government to at least consider before this new election. All right, I hope so, and I hope they listen to you. <laughs> Crossing my fingers too. Now, it's always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for having me. Bye bye. Bye. Stephen Buffalo, the president and CEO of the. Indian Resource Council. Barbara Kay joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. How are you, Barb? Hi, Roy. Nice to uh, be on your show again. It's been a while. Just yes. uh, just occurred to me when I read the column, I thought, I have to call Barb. It's been a while since we, <laughs> since we spoke with her. Well, uh, good. I'm glad you thought of me, yes. Yeah. So what caused you to write the column at this particular time? I, uh, I've been wanting to write about immigration uh, for a while because I think it is obviously going to be a topic. Um, people, I, I mean, it doesn't. You don't have to be uh, prescient to catch the mood uh, in Canada. People are very uneasy. Uh, they've been made uneasy by our prime minister's attitude to bringing people in in whatever way it happens, legally, illegally. Uh, our prime minister ha- has a, an attitude which we often call one-worldism. Um, some people call it an open borders policy, uh, not policy, but an attitude. And I think it is going to be a hot item because of people's concern about uh, illegal migrants uh, coming across the border so easily, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's invitation to them, uh, to come. he So people are very uneasy at the continuing very high numbers of official immigration uh, that is considered desirable by this government, mm-hmm. which is, you know, going to be, what, a million over the next three years. That's right. Yeah, that's a lot of people, but we don't really know if these are people that we... Uh, I mean, these are not all skilled workers. Or, I mean, these, some of them are skilled workers, some are family members, uh, but... It's not like we're matching them up to to actual requests from industry. Uh, these are just, you know, numbers that uh, the the liberals threw up in the air and said, "Let's do it. It looks good, uh, and it is good because a lot of them are going to be liberal voters." Uh, that's this is what immigrants have become over the years. That's right. You know, and, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And when 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 Prime Minister Trudeau talks about the 40s and the 50s and refugees and the Vietnam refugees, these really were uh, people fleeing communism, Nazism, um, horrible massacres, genocides. I mean, everybody understands uh, when you, you know, both people, everybody understands uh, people fleeing, uh, you know, Soviet tanks. Uh, We all understand that. But we're well beyond that now, and we're just into people that want to be in Canada. Uh, They could be stay home, but they see economic opportunity here or uh, values that we have that they want to embrace, whatever. Uh, we're, we're all very sympathetic to that. I think we are, we, you and I and most reasonable people, they understand that they, that they get it. And we, need, we do, do need a certain number of skilled people uh, or labor. There are labor needs, uh, but they aren't, I don't think, as high as uh, the government 
projects the numbers that they want to bring in. And I do think that a lot of industries are going to have to be losing uh, numbers because of automation, artificial intelligence, robots. Um, A lot of the kind of work that, that immigrants do when they first come over until they get, you know, their feet uh, on the ground, uh, taxi drivers, you know, delivery guys, all these jobs, a lot of them may soon be disappearing. So I don't think our government really knows if, if there's going to be jobs available for all these people. No, you know, we spoke with uh, an expert on artificial intelligence. He's the CEO of a major company that is headquartered in, in China. He was on the program a couple of months ago. And if I recall correctly, he said the numbers of jobs, this is now across the board, the numbers of jobs that are going to be lost to artificial intelligence over a not too long period of time is 40 to 50 percent of existing jobs are going to be gone forever. So, So, you know, the response to my tweeting that you were going to be on the show and we were going to be talking about your column has been very strong. And I think part of it, Barb, is that you wrote, and I mentioned this line, the PM uh, is perceived by many as lacking the ability or desire to distinguish between immigrants and migrants and refugees. And so that leaves folks in this country who have an opinion on immigration and want to express it in limbo um, because you do get attacked if you challenge immigration. I was attacked a few years ago for just using the word foreigner. Yeah. Um, so now Trudeau is a post-nationalist. To him, nationalism, patriotism, love of country runs afoul of his globalist views. And people have been, I think, largely encouraged to keep their views on immigration to themselves if they don't dovetail with Mr. Trudeau's. Yeah, because, uh, look, the buzzword for anything people don't like that you say is you're a racist. Uh, and it's, it's just easy to fling at somebody. And the fact is that most of the people coming to Canada, whether it's migrants, refugees, or immigrants, are coming from countries that are, uh, you know, other cultures and 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 dark skin. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it's an easy thing to say, and it's one of the reasons why I think uh, conservatives have a tough time. I mean, politicians, conservative politicians, have a tough time speaking up about it. They they're trying to couch their arguments in ways that don't make them appear racist, but all somebody has to do is say, you're a racist. You don't want people of color coming to this country. Um, And that's not the reason. Uh, But, you know, you're you're doomed before you even start. Well, they have to show some courage. They have to show some commitment. Uh, Mr. Mr. Scheer, uh, particularly as we get closer to October, is going to have to show commitment to the positions that he believes in and challenge folks who are going to call him, uh, may call him a racist. Just well, what because, does just, he believe? Right, what just, does he believe? Because I can't figure it out. It's hard to figure out. And, and no, you know, just I because somebody know. calls you a racist doesn't mean you have to succumb to their, to their name calling. Well, the thing is, though, that people have a very short attention span. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, all Trudeau has to do is, well, I heard, I heard uh, uh, the opposition leader suggested that we have uh, less, less immigration. Uh, well, this is, uh, you know, this is an attitude that, that is offensive to people of color or to well, whatever. I mean, he could just say, yeah, I get you. Just throw it out there. And and then, of course, you're on the defensive. So, no, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. And then you look, you, it doesn't matter what you say. You're, you're tarred. You're already, that's it. You know, you're done. Um, it's very hypocritical. Uh, but But that is the problem. Now, can I take a, Barb, can I take a quick break? 
And sure. we'll, we'll come back. I want to talk to you about, uh, you mentioned a column written by, I think it was, was it Ibbotson, John Ibbotson? Yeah, John Ibbotson, yeah. yeah. So you you mentioned the column, and you also spoke to the Herb Grubel. Herbert Grubel, Herbert Grubel from right. the uh, Fraser Institute, yeah. Right, and, and SFU, and uh, who specializes on immigration matters. So I want to talk to you about that. Um, so, Barb, you wrote in the column, you write about uh, another piece written by John Ibbotson and statistics that are quoted about immigration and immigrants employed after they arrive in this country. And you spoke with the professor of economics at Simon Fraser University and the Fraser Institute, Herbert Grubel. Can you put that into context for us, please? Yeah. Uh, I mean, John Ibbotson, he, he says, well, things are working out extremely well in immigration life because uh, we find that... Uh, 64% of people age 15 and older who arrived in Canada in the last five years are employed. It's the same percentage pretty well as those who are native-born. So it's a tie. So the, the labor, you know, they're, they're, they're in work at the same rates as native people. So right. then Professor Grubel said, well, actually, that's, uh, that, that's, a, that, that's a very narrow, narrow metric. And he said the improvement... Um, to the country are, are very small, and he notes, he says you've got to go by the income tax paid, and according to the income taxes paid by immigrants since 1986, uh, they're about half of those paid by non-immigrant Canadians, so they absorb the same value from our government infrastructure and Medicare system, etc., um, but uh, they're they're getting that the government's paying five thousand dollars a year per person. I mean, the, the difference is five thousand dollars a year per person, and collectively, uh, Professor Grubel estimates it comes to an annual thirty billion dollar payout uh, for immigrants. And he says as well that the infrastructure you can't keep having immigrants coming in unless you're expanding the infrastructure to accommodate them. And one of the things that people do notice uh, is that uh, hospital, hospital waiting rooms, you know, emergency rooms, uh, they're highly, they can't absorb, they don't have the capacity to serve the numbers of people that are coming into the area. Um, so uh, recreation centers, uh, one person noticed that he's on a hiking trail in, in British Columbia, which, by the way, receives so many people coming in Vancouver alone. Uh, needs 300 housing units a week to accommodate the new immigrants coming in. And somebody remarked they were hiking on a trail about an hour out of Vancouver. Uh, usually, it's, it, in the old days, it would be half deserted, as hiking trails you want them to be. And he said it was so mobbed uh, that you couldn't park in the parking lot and you couldn't, you know, it was like a lineup on the trail. Okay. To, are, we, are we experiencing a, a, net, a net gain um, societally and economically and uh, numerically with the current policy, which has some 300,000 immigrants coming into this country every year. I think that puts us at number one in developed nations as far as immigrants as a percentage yeah, of mean, national population is concerned. Are we at a, net, uh, at a net gain situation, or are we not supposed to talk about that? Well, we're not supposed to talk about that because, uh, you know, immigrants even if they don't do well in the first generation, usually their kids do better. Fine, that's great. But if you keep having the same numbers coming in, coming in, coming in, you never find out whether it's going to be a net gain or not because you're constantly paying out for the first generation. Um, why don't we, what's so terrible if we took a pause and we say reduced immigration by two-thirds for just for a few years 
to see if there's actually, does it cause a crisis in our employment needs? Uh, you know, the government is not asking business to supply the numbers they need. They're, they're making it up themselves. But you know, know you, and I, you and I both know that that's not going to be discussed in Parliament because, as you no, pointed out, the government doesn't want to and the opposition parties are scared to. Well, that's right. So it's, we're, it's just going to keep happening because you and I and a lot of Canadians are asking very reasonable questions. Immigration is about people that choose to come here. They're not fleeing genocides. They're not fleeing, you know, Nazism. They just want to come here. And uh, they're not refugees. So let's, uh, let's make it good for us and, and, and bring in the number of people that are good for Canada. So we need metrics that are realistic to decide that. And the government is not using those metrics. It's using emotion. It's using, uh, we're good people. This is what Canada is. This is what we do. This is, we're an open society. We, diversity is our strength. All these mantras have nothing to do uh, with whether all this tremendous uh, mass immigration is actually good for immigrants and good for us. Somebody, you know, so somebody asked me this question, and and you mentioned hospitals before and wait times, and they are they're very concerning. And somebody said uh, the other day, somebody said to me, I forget who it was, said uh, when you talk about hospital wait times, for example, and then the immigrants come into the conversation, are the immigrants being scapegoated because the wait times are really generated by an aging population? I, you know what? I don't have the answer to that. I don't have an, the answers to a whole series of questions I should have answers to. And I believe, Barb, that's because we are not having a national discussion on this very important issue. And even when it comes to election time, they're going to slough over it because they don't they won't want to make mistakes that can cost them votes. Well, if, if, it's, if it's because of an aging population, uh, that is something that there's no excuse for not having the infrastructure for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, since True. that's something that's known you know, yep, well in true. advance. Uh, so we should know about that. But I, I think it's maybe it's a mixture of both. It doesn't matter. We can't do anything about the aging, but uh, it, it, it may be the case that we could work, our, our, our employment needs would be perfectly well met with if we were bringing in a third the number of immigrants. Okay. And if that's the case, uh, this, this idea that this is who we are and we're open and we diversity, diversity, that's that's just not a good enough reason. Okay. Uh, we already have a lot of diversity, and I'm perfectly happy to have more if it's necessary. And, I mean, not the diversity part. If, if people from outside the country are necessary to make this a better place... Can you, more Barb, can, can you stay with us a little bit longer? I'd like to include some phone calls from our, from our listeners. Sure. Uh, Barb, we have lots of people who want to chip in here. I won't ask you to stay with us for more than a few minutes. Um, and we also have... Um, Michelle Rample coming up in a, in a few minutes' time, the conservative critic, immigration citizenship critic. Let's talk about, before we take a call, this, the whole idea of what you can say, what you can, shouldn't say, or what you're perceived to uh, perhaps not say. Now, for example, if you mention that housing becomes problematic, which you have, that hospitals may become subjected to overcrowding, which you have and we know is happening uh, that Canada's cultural mosaic is um, perhaps repeatedly shocked. All points which are fair for discussion, you brought them up, and I, I'm happy to say to you that I agree this has to be part of our national discussion. But if we do it, if you do it, the label racist isn't far behind. 
It's going to be applied and applied publicly. Uh, so how do you get people to forge beyond the fear of engaging in reasonable, rational, necessary debate on the issue of immigration? That's a very good question. I, I really do wish I had the answer. Actually, I think maybe your next guest, Michelle Rempel, could help uh, with that. She has been extremely outspoken, very courageous, in my opinion, in um, just you know setting aside the hypocrisy and everything else. She's a straight shooter. Uh, she's been extremely active on the Aviti file um, and calling out the government for hypocrisy on that. They're, they're very eager to help, uh, you know, Muslim refugees, but uh, in terms of Christians and, and Yazidis who are subject to genocidal conditions, uh, they have been far less, far less active, far less interested. Uh, so, you know, I, one could say they're the racists because uh, they're so fixated on um, uh, not appearing to be uh, partial to... to uh, well, Christian. remember this, though, that Justin Trudeau in 2015, as a matter of fact, I can play the clip for you, in 2015, he was, he, he was asked about convicted terrorists retaining their Canadian citizenship if they're dual citizens. Here's how that went. Yes, yes. Uh, C-24... Uh, <laughs> It's the bill that, for me, exemplifies the conservatives' approach to politics. Because what they get to say with the Liberal Party's staunch opposition to C24, because we absolutely and thoroughly impose it, is that, and I'll give you the quote, so you guys can jot it down and put it in an attack ad somewhere, that the, the Liberal Party believes that terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship. Because I do. And I'm willing to take on anyone who disagrees with that. So, so there you are, Barb. This is part of the immigration equation as well, because we're talking about dual citizenship. And here's the man who would become the Prime Minister of Canada, stating unequivocally that he believes, and because he believes it, so does the Liberal Party, mm -hmm. that convicted terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship. And he passed legislation to make that happen. And it's called Bill C-6. And this is all part of the overall picture and issue. Yeah. Well, he was the one also, when he was in Quebec not that long ago, uh, and a woman in uh, the crowd he was talking to expressed concern about illegal migrants coming over uh, yelled at her and pointed at her and said, you have no place in this society. So terrorists have a place in our society, but somebody who questions uh, the value of having, you know, uh, uncontained uh, migrant uh, illegal entry into the country is somebody who, and, and he told her she was a bigot and she had no place in the society. That really struck me. No place in the society for someone who objects to illegal um, illegal aliens coming over from a third party, from a safe country. Uh, wow, that that really threw me. So, yeah, I think people are, you, I mean, they're upset, but they don't know how to express it or they're afraid to express it mm -hmm. um, because, you know, he's got the moral high ground with these, with these touchy-feely mantras, um, and they just go unchecked. 
I think Michelle Rempel is, is has the courage to call out some of those matches and to describe them as how you know with with the contempt that they deserve. Uh, but uh, you know she's not the leader, uh, so she won't be running for um, you know for for uh, uh, prime ministership. And uh, I don't know what the answer is because we're li- you know sometimes you're up against a zeitgeist, uh, Roy. You're up against uh, a cultural wave. And it's just too powerful to beat against. It's you know you you it's like holding back the tide, uh, and and I do feel that people that hold the views that you and I and many of your listeners do are are a bit like King Canute trying to hold back a tide. Doesn't mean that we should stop voting or stop you know expressing our views, uh, but it's 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 there's nothing to fight against that that's solid because you're not. You're not arguing on re- rational grounds. When people argue with name calling, then how can you have a discussion? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, one thing that I would say, let me get Gordon on this, uh, Barb. I, I would say that there's no reason for anyone to accept being labeled. If you start to defend yourself once you're labeled, you've lost already. Gord is in Calgary. Gord, thanks for the call. Hey, thanks for your time. Just a couple things. One quick down moral high ground the moment that the moral high ground tells you how you're not supposed to think i guess you could in turn say sounds like you're a bully you could do that because if i'm not allowed to express myself against as you say the touchy-feely left well then they're being bullies telling me that i can't have my own opinion so that's one thing number two i'd be very interested in seeing immigration wise where we stand in this country, for example, if we brought in immigrants from Korea, Australia, Nigeria, uh, Chile, wherever, and just we can sort of see where that fits in economically. And I'll bet you dollars to donuts, and the touchy-feely left will hate this comment, is countries that maybe value the education system a little more with their children. Okay, Gord, I thank you for the call. it's again, Barb. It's it's a case of speaking up, speaking out, and not being intimidated. Uh, yeah, I, I I do agree with you. Uh, you know, the the most touchy area it, it does it is the cultural aspect. And if you if you feel that you you know Canada has a culture uh, worth preserving, and if you believe in the integration model, the melting pot, or not even melting pot, just integration uh, into what Canadians, it's what I call social reciprocity, mm-hmm. uh, that you, may, you, you adopt the same assumptions. Uh, it's more than values. It's something like principles, that this should be something to be encouraged, and we don't want everybody in their little cultural silos. Uh, our prime minister, when he says diversity is her strength, he doesn't mean just people looking different. He means people acting different and acting different in significant ways. Um, so everybody knows that these are all dog whistle topics. And and there are some racists out there who really just don't like people from certain places. That's unfortunate because even if they're one in a hundred and the rest are all approaching this very rationally, it only takes one um, in, 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 in an activist group right. uh, 
you know, and, and it colors everybody else associated with it. Yeah. And that's why I don't have an answer to your question. Well, it, it's, uh, it is a question that's going to have to be asked because what's happening now is the ground is being set, the, the ground rules are being set by, uh, by, the, by the liberals for the October 21st federal election, and they're shutting down. They're doing the level best to shut down a relevant debate on the issue of immigration. I'm, uh, your, your column certainly generated a tremendous amount of feedback. Barb, thanks so much. Great talking to you. Oh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'll be back for sure. Thank you. Barbara Kay from the National Post. 60% of Canadians told the Angus Reid Institute in a national poll that the lack of new pipelines is considered a, a national crisis. Certainly been getting a lot of attention uh, from media, getting a lot of attention on this program, as it rightfully must. And joining me is Shaki Curl. She's the executive director of uh, the Angus Reid Institute. And Shaki, it's always good talking to you. That that 58%, is that a, was that a surprise at all? You know, Roy, I always try not to be surprised by our numbers because it presupposes that, that we have an impression of what's going on in the country. But it, it did... Uh, it did say to me that we're starting to see opinion move in a certain direction on this file and and change, uh, and that that does that does stand out. That is significant. So for the first time, we are seeing um, majorities in parts of the country that have largely not paid attention to this issue starting to say. We're paying attention to it, and we actually have an opinion about it. If I had asked people in Ontario three years ago, uh, what uh, what do you think about the pipeline file? A significant number would have said, we actually don't have an opinion. We don't know. We're not paying attention to it. We're not alive to this issue. Uh, and it, it's not uh, just folks in Ontario, uh, Atlantic Canada, Manitoba. Basically, the further away you got from really the hot zone of the debate, which was British Columbia, Alberta, and to a lesser extent, Saskatchewan, the more people were kind of just shrugging their shoulders. That's not the case anymore. Now we are starting to see uh, really sort of a national sense of engagement on this file in a way that we haven't seen in the past. Is that because there's a greater understanding of what's at play, what's at risk? From my perspective, there's sort of three things at play that are happening that are that are changing the, the dynamics. The first thing is uh, the sense of, I think, skin in the game or awareness given that, hey, we're all now part owners of a pipeline. You own a little piece of the pipeline. I own a little piece of the pipeline. Everyone in Canada owns a little piece of the pipeline because the federal government spent $4.5 billion to purchase it from Kinder Morgan. That's the first thing. Second, uh, we have seen a sustained communications campaign on part of the government of Alberta. There are ad runs in every province talking about the pipeline, why it's important to Canada. Uh, people may agree or may not agree, but they, they can no longer say that, that they're really not alive to the issue. That plus, over the Christmas season, uh, you know, a fairly slow time of year from a news perspective, uh, we watched and heard and listened to uh, people uh, in their caravans, in their convoys, driving from Alberta to other parts of the country uh, to say, you know what, we want to get this pipeline completed. Mm -hmm. And I think that has sort of really amped the issue, put it on the radar for people who may not have been paying attention to it uh, before, I think, are paying more attention now. You know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, I, I made a point on the air about three or four weeks ago that, and I use this number 
probably pretty close, actually, that 99% of emails that I received from Ontario listeners to this show were very much supportive of their fellow Canadians in Alberta, concerned about what the uh, Albertans were experiencing as far as job loss was concerned and the, and the, and the challenges in the energy sector. There was a reaching out to, to, from one Canadian to another Canadian, and there was, no, there was no equivocation. It was very, very strong. And I think that is certainly uh, a significant part of all of this. And it's something the government and the opposition parties are going to have to factor in very, very carefully into, in, into their planning for the federal election. So there's a few a few things at play politically, Roy. Um, you know, you you hinted at this in the intro to the segment. There are some massive regional divisions uh, which make it difficult for any uh, uh, national leader. It doesn't matter if it's Justin Trudeau or, frankly, Andrew Scheer, or even if he survives this by-election in Burnaby, uh, Jagmeet Singh. Um, you know, they they are all going to have a very difficult time. Uh, espousing a message uh, that they expect to resonate in every part of the country. For Justin Trudeau and for Andrew Scheer, both have a pro-pipeline position. That's great in uh, in Ontario. That's great in Alberta. It's great in Saskatchewan. It's going to lead him into some trouble. Both of them would be in some trouble in British Columbia and in Quebec. And, uh, you know, as much as we, we like it or don't like it, you can't win an election in this country without doing very, very well in Ontario and doing very, very well in Quebec. Well, here's the thing. We talked about those regional divisions. Sixty uh, percent of Quebecers, 60 percent of Quebecers, the majority in that province, do not support the pipeline, do not think the lack of new oil pipeline capacity in the country is a crisis. They are very firmly on the other side of this debate, as are about half of British Columbians. So Justin Trudeau going into 2019 has to find a way to mitigate losses that he's going to take in B.C. uh, as a result of his stance on the pipeline and try to look for a way not to alienate voters in Quebec who are also going to be upset about this. He's in a tough spot, but it's not much better for Andrew Scheer because he's going to run into the same problems in his pro-pipeline stance. It's interesting. Now, I'm not, I have to sort of pull your, one of your competitors into the picture here because I spoke with the Montreal Economic Institute uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about the poll that Leger did for them uh, with Quebecers, and 66% of Quebecers favor Western Canadian oil over foreign oil, and 45% favored pipelines, and that was the light, a significantly larger percentage than any other form of transport for oil. So uh, you know what it boils down to for me is the politicians, whoever they are, whatever their objectives are, take a stand and stick with it because that's what people expect. You can't deliver half a message here, another half a message somewhere else, and then try to deliver uh, some postscript somewhere else because it's going to catch up with you in this world. Well, look, um, you know, uh, to to your point about the polling, uh, yeah, it's entirely possible that, that all things are true, that Quebecers are opposed to pipelines but favor Canadian oil and would prefer to see oil uh, shipped by pipeline than rail, so long as it's not coming through the island of Montreal and other parts of, of their province. Uh, hey, you can be all for everything as long as it doesn't affect you personally. 
And and so that is where you have a, a, a really a conflict of interest uh, with people who who sort of like everything, but ultimately the rubber has to hit the road. The pipeline eventually has to get done uh, from the perspective of the federal government. Uh, and this is where it gets very challenging. This is why Energy East died in Quebec. But um, but look. I think the big takeaway here is for the first time we're seeing just a little bit more room, a little bit more runway, a little bit more buy-in, particularly, as I say, in parts of the country that have not been engaged mm-hmm. on the issue. And and uh, and while I hear you, you know, you talk about y- your callers calling in from Ontario, I'm going to suggest that... that uh, those are fairly engaged people. They are paying attention to what's happening oh, in clearly, the country. Clearly, they doesn't are. doesn't speak for for everyone, Ontario. Um, and but what I would say is that that we are seeing more levels of engagement. Uh, if you are a pro pipeline politician in this country, uh, that gives you uh, a moment to sort of say, okay, maybe it looks like I have something to work with. If you are an anti pipeline politician in this country, it certainly. Uh, gives uh, people on the other side of that debate some some reason to get fired up and say, hey, we can't quit the fight, we got to keep fighting. So this is going to continue to be a very polarizing, very polarizing, very passionate issue. Uh, the level of passion is not dialing down. I think that is one thing that we're starting to see. Always good talking to you, Shaki. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Take care. All the best. Shaki Curl, Executive Director of the Angus Reid Institute, On the national polling, they did 58% of Canadians are saying that the lack of new pipelines is a national crisis. It was a pleasure for me this morning to welcome to her new home a very brave new Canadian, Rahaf Al-Kunan. Tristia Freeland, the Foreign Affairs Minister for Canada, last weekend as she welcomed to Canada, uh, she said the... uh, New Canadian, latest Canadian, uh, Rahaf Al-Kanun, and you know the story. There is a a concern, and it's been talked about and reported, and particularly over the last week, about women from Gulf states who flee for their lives out of fear of their fathers and their families. And some of them, and uh, the, uh, the, the young, newest Canadian has said that she, and she tweeted this globally, that she was terrified of her family because she'd renounced Islam and she feared for her life. Radha Sterling is the founder of DetainedInDubai.org, Detained in Dubai, and she joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network from uh, Britain, from, from London. Radha, thank you very much for, for the time. How, how are things for women in conservative, patriarchal, countries in the Gulf? I mean, even though there has been quite a lot of uh, promotion as to women's rights improving in the Gulf, and and particularly in Qatar, where the workforce there is now over 50% uh, female, but I think, you know, cases that we see in Saudi are actually a Gulf-wide issue, and there is still, um, you know, the, the very prominent issue in this case of male guardianship, um, which... I, I believe that Saudi will have to change um, very, very promptly even. And I think there's already sort of plans in motion to try and promote that kind of change that they need to be part of the international community uh, to promote it to the more conservative people um, in their own country and hope that this, this will ultimately change. 
And I think Rahaf um, coming to Canada and being so public about the whole situation um, is really interesting in the in the way that Saudi actually even broadcast in their own country uh, her statements, her the, the statement that she issued. So I think in broadcasting something that probably would previously have been completely censored and media blackout within Saudi, I think that they themselves might even be using this, you know, the, the higher level government there might even be using her case to promote a kind of change of attitude in Saudi. And we can see that with, you know, women driving and, and various other um, abilities that women now have without having to have a guardian sign these, these permission slips. So I think it, it's really, I mean, it's great that she got out. It's great that she was able to use Twitter as a platform to uh, secure her safety. I'm personally being contacted by, uh, you know, a lot of women, I think, in light of Princess Latifah having uh, tried to escape Dubai and in light of Rahaf, I think it is inspiring women. And we are getting more calls and we are getting, you know, just more, more and more people saying, look, this is enough things do have to change. Well, let's talk about uh, Princess Latifah. She's the daughter of uh, the billionaire ruler of Dubai, who, if I have this correctly, is also the vice president of the UAE. Uh, She attempted to escape her family, not once but twice, and the country, and then nothing was heard from Latifah for for months until a yacht she was on was boarded by uh, military special forces, and she was returned to Dubai, Amnesty International became involved. The uh, former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, became involved. What's the story there? Um, well, Latifa, she contacted uh, Princess Latifa. She's one of the daughters of Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, she contacted me from the boat where she had uh, boarded to try and escape uh, the UAE, and it was the second time that she tried to escape. She cited in in the video released on YouTube that it was for reasons of torture. Um, and, and various other human rights abuses, uh, essentially from her father and and his people. So it's a very serious allegation, and one that people didn't initially they, they couldn't believe that it could be true. Could Sheikh Mohammed do something like this? I think now that we've seen Hashogi and, and these other cases coming more more and more into the media, I think there's there's, there's not really that kind of initial doubt that people had uh, before. But anyway, she was uh, hoping to make it to the United States. She was on um, a US-flagged yacht heading to India. And in international waters, her yacht was attacked by military forces orchestrated or initiated from the UAE, but included uh, Indian Coast Guard. Um, She was taken from that yacht back to the UAE, uh, as well as with the five other people who were on board with her, the crew, the people helping her, her friend. who were also taken back to the UAE, but released two weeks later after diplomatic pressure. So then uh, Latifah wasn't heard from for about uh, eight months. Uh, we put a lot of pressure. We, we instructed the United Nations investigation. There was you know, Amnesty Human Rights Watch ourselves just constantly pressuring the UAE to respond. But the only, I mean, the first time that they responded was when the BBC documentary explaining the situation came out. So I think these... These Gulf nations don't really care so much about diplomatic pressure or the United Nations or human rights groups, um, not even our own governments. They really start to respond when matters hit the press. And that's with Latifah and, the, and this, this BBC documentary that, that was broadcast everywhere. It's with Rahaf and all of the media attention she got. If it's diplomatic channels, the, the Gulf nations just completely ignore it. And you said uh, you're contacted by many, many women, many young women from the Gulf states. 
Yes, that's right. Um, it, it can be Saudi. It can even be the UAE, which is a country that we think would be more modern and supportive right, of exactly. women's rights. And yeah, we, we have a completely. I mean, from our point of view, Saudi looks a lot more backwards when it comes to women's rights than than the UAE or Qatar. But still, these problems are absolutely Gulf wide, and there's just not enough protection for for women in particular, obviously. Well, I, I'm really fascinated by. Uh by the by what we're finding out and and your organization detained in dubai.org detained in dubai.org i hope we can uh, speak again yeah definitely i'm i'm sure that there'll be many more issues to cover in the future so. yeah we'll definitely call you rada thank you so much for the time yeah thank you have a oh, good day. bye bye rada sterling the founder of detained in dubai so i was curious about you know, what it was that um, rahaf al kanun was facing with her Concerns about her family, and and then I uh, found out about uh, Rata Sterling and detained in Dubai, and she commented on uh, Ms. Alkanun. So, yeah, imagine that trying to get away from your family, and uh, you're on a yacht, well, and you're boarded by militaries, and you're dragged home. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more. Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.